0: To episode 40 of the podcast History Does You. Today we'll be focusing on the First World War in the Middle East, which is very exciting. Just for some housekeeping, this is going to be episode 40 and our final episode of season two. Since I will be having finals over the next couple weeks, I need to be focused on that and unfortunately not the podcast. So we'll probably be taking my guesses anywhere from two to three weeks off. So while we take some time off, I definitely encourage you to catch up on different episodes. We definitely had some really cool interviews for season two. and We covered a wide variety of topics. So I definitely encourage you to go back and look at our library now that we've had almost 40 episodes and almost 36 interviews up to this point. So there's a wide variety of historians and government officials and journalists to choose from, and they all have their own perspectives and kind of unique experiences. So I definitely encourage you to do that. As for the First World War in the Middle East, I've always kind of been interested in this topic because the Middle East has generally been the focus of much of American foreign policy in the 21st century, but you almost have to go back to the First World War to understand how The Middle East is why it is today. That's mainly because for the vast majority of the Middle Eastern history, it's been under the control of various empires from Islamic empires to colonial empires like the British and the French. So this concept of nation states wasn't really implemented until after the First World War. So when this all occurred, it was a brand new concept. And sort of the lines and the modern borders that were drew that still exist to this day came out of the First World War. And those weren't really drawn with any sort of historical background or ethical background. It was pretty much just you draw these lines. I take this territory, you get this territory. And I think that's one of the big reasons why it's so volatile is you have this mix. a lot of these countries of groups that don't generally interact with each other and don't like each other. So I think that's part of the reason why you get this volatility. And it's not the sole reason, but I think is part of the reason. And also the First World War, also known as kind of Bringing an end to several empires, including the German Empire, the Austro Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, and finally the Ottoman Empire, which had existed for almost four centuries up to that point and had been on a very long decline. So, the First World War pretty much brought the Ottoman Empire to the end and made the modern Middle East with the nation state system. So, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Super informative and kind of traces pretty much all the aspects of the war, which pretty much covered every aspect of the Middle East. So hope you enjoy it. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Eugene Rogan. He's a professor of modern Middle Eastern history and a fellow St. Anthony's College in England. He's the author of several books on the Middle East, including The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East, which was an international bestseller and economist's best book of the year. His other work includes The Arabs of History and Outside In on the margins of the modern Middle East. So welcome on. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. And to start off, what is your favorite subject of history, the research, and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in the First World War in the Middle East?
1: I think my first real love as a scholar of the Middle East was the Ottoman history of the Arab lands, particularly the 19th century, when so much was in play. It was that moment where a lot of the ideas and technologies of the Industrial Revolution, of the European Enlightenment, were being spread across the Mediterranean world and picked up by local thinkers and policy makers. And they began to shape discourses and debates in places like Cairo or Istanbul or Tunis that were to really reshape the history of the region and set a kind of dynamic in motion that just made for such interesting history to read. And to get at it, I was lucky enough to have grown up in the Middle East, so I had some Arabic. I added some Turkish while a grad student so I could access the archives in Turkey as well as in the Arab world. And being able to approach Middle Eastern history in the 19th century, social, economic history through the Arab and Turkish sources just meant that there was a world of value added. And I found that exciting as a kind of treasure hunt. And I still do.
0: And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered either in this specific book or during any of your other research?
1: Well, I mean, the challenge any archival historian faces is getting access of the material that will allow them to write what they would like to write. And I think Ottoman historians are very fortunate that the Ottoman archives in Istanbul are such a rich resource. And the restrictions that had been the norm in the 1970s and 80s really began to fall off by the time I started working there in the 1990s. So an an earlier generation of Ottomanists faced real barriers. They would not be allowed to photocopy materials, were allowed to call up very limited amounts, and whole areas of research were kind of closed to them. I think the shackles were blown off Ottoman history writing. I think that they're still there for people working in Arab countries, where arguably society and government has too much respect for history. They actually believe that if people talked openly and honestly about the historic past that it could be destabilizing to politics today. And so history remains a kind of censored subject, access to archives, very restricted for whole fields that we would like to be doing work in, in countries across the region, even where you have really, really rich archives, like let's say in Egypt, where fabulous archives, but political restrictions make that really difficult. Or Saudi Arabia, where again, they've really been gathering some great materials but where they're very concerned about the line that you take on the material you use, that it's not used to embarrass the country. So, I mean, I think those are the kind of difficulties we face.
0: And then to get into the First World War in the Middle East, which we'll be talking about today, the to start, what was kind of the state of the Ottoman Empire in the years leading up to the war? Was it generally on the decline?
1: I think that's the common perception. And there's certainly good reasons to see the Ottomans as having been as you say, on the decline. Between 1908 and the outbreak of First World War, the Ottoman Empire underwent a constitutional revolution. A year later, a counter-revolution that failed, leading to the abdication of the long-serving autocrat, Sultan Abdul Hamid II. This led to a series of three wars, one with Italy over Libya, Italy, in its bid to extend empire in Africa, without provocation, invaded the Ottoman territories of Tripolitania and Benghazi, leading to a a Turco Italian war, which the Ottomans lose, and they lose their last territories in North Africa, in Libya. And then two wars in the Balkan successor states that used to have been um, provinces of the Ottoman Empire in the course of the 19th century had broken away from the Ottomans, established their own countries, Bulgaria, Montenegro, Serbia, Greece. These successive states, all of them really quite small, were able to club together and defeat the Ottomans in the First Balkan War in a way which even left a lot of Ottoman observers wondering whether there was any saving their empire or whether it was in a terminal decline, a terminal spiral. But we forget that in the Second Balkan War in 1913, when the Balkan states fell out among themselves over how to divide the spoils of the First Balkan War, the Ottomans were actually able to go back and reclaim some territory they lost in Thrace. They reclaimed their second capital, Adirne, Adrianople. And in many ways, by 1914, you would have said that the Ottomans had seen their empire trimmed to a more viable state based around the Turkish-speaking and the Arabic-speaking lands, and that within those frontiers, you had a state that really could withstand the challenges of the 20th century, except for the First World War. And there, I think the state was put under more pressure than it could bear.
0: And I think one of the unique kind of relationships during the war was between Germany and the Ottoman Empire. What kind of drew Germany closer to the Ottomans? Was it purely geopolitical reasons or were there other motivations to it?
1: Well, I think the geopolitical gives rise to the instrumental motivation. Geopolitical terms, Germany had never had any imperial ambitions in Ottoman lands. They were able to make friendly gestures to the Ottomans. So Kaiser Wilhelm twice visited the Ottoman Empire, once before ascending to the throne, once subsequent to becoming Kaiser. On that second visit, he made a real point of pledging Germany's eternal friendship to the Ottoman Empire and to the Muslim world at large. But instrumentally, I think that the Germans saw the Ottoman Empire as a potential ally and launching pad for extending German influence at Britain's expense into Central and South Asia. And this was an area where the Germans felt there really was something in it for them. They were very keen in the second decade of the 20th century to be pressing Britain that they saw as a country that was limiting Germany's ambitions and its scope for empire. And they saw working with the Ottomans as a way to help them get closer to India through Ottoman frontiers. So in a sense, when war breaks out in the Balkans in 1914 and draws the European powers into what becomes the First World War, the Ottomans found themselves faced with an imminent threat from a Russian empire that the Ottomans knew as a matter of policy, hoped to use the First World War and the fog of war to seize not just more territory in the Caucasus region, from the Ottoman Empire, but actually to seize the Ottoman capital city of Istanbul, or Constantinople, as it was then called, here grabbing the cultural capital of the seat of Orthodox Christianity to sort of reinforce Mother Russia's ties to the Orthodox Christian Church, but in pragmatic terms, to seize the strategic waterways linking the Black Sea to the Med. This is the Straits of the Bosphorus, the Sea of Marmara, and the Dardanelles. And for that, I think the Ottomans were quite rightly concerned about Russian intentions in World War I. The Ottomans were looking for an ally to protect them from Russia. They tried Britain, they tried France, but of course those were two countries that were already allied to Russia in the triple entente. So no chance for breakthrough there. The longstanding friendship with Germany, its technological progress, its military strength, made Germany actually quite an attractive partner. And so in August of 1914, when France and Britain were pretty much closed off as partners for a defensive treaty of alliance, the Ottomans jumped right in with the Germans. But you might ask, what was in it for Germany? And here I think Germany had hoped to use their alliance with the Ottomans to be able to put pressure on Britain, France, and Russia through their Muslim colonial subjects by getting the Ottoman sultan to turn the First World War into a jihad. And in that, the Germans believed the Ottomans, even in their weakened state, held a secret weapon that might make a decisive uh, difference to the German First World War effort.
0: And generally, what was kind of the Ottoman response to the outbreak of the war? Did they welcome it? Was there fear? What was kind of the reaction across their empire?
1: Well, The concern for the Ottoman center was, as I said, Russian intentions. And so they were very concerned to try and stop Russia from acting on its policy of claiming their capital city. And the Ottoman citizen at large was dreading the idea of another war. Uh, For the Ottoman citizen, they'd been called on three times already, the Italian War and the two Balkan Wars. The experience had not been good. These were wars that the Ottomans got mauled in. And so they weren't keen to go back to war again. And they weren't even confident that if they went to war, that they would be able to prevail. They had been losing wars to minor powers like Italy, Greece, Bulgaria, What chances would they have against major powers like Russia or Britain or France, even if they were to be allied with Germany? Could the Ottoman Empire defend its vast frontiers against hostilities by such powerful adversaries? So I think the average Ottoman citizen viewed the prospect of war with great forebodings. And if anything, they were resentful of the young Turk leadership for having brought them into a war in which the Ottomans had no interest and had no stake. And yeah,
0: obviously the war starts in the summer of 1914. What were some of the opening strategic moves of the wars on the war on both sides?
1: Well, on Tant's side, Britain and France immediately began to press the Ottomans on their far-flung borders. So Britain making a quick drive to secure the waterway between Iran and Iraq, the Shat al-Arab, to secure their oil facilities in Dan Island. This is the end of a Persian pipeline where all the refineries and storage capacity was held. And they were determined that the Ottomans not seize that and it to the German sort of hydrocarbon arsenal. And at the same time, the British strike at Aden, as far from the Ottoman center as you can get. They bombard the Red Sea coastline around Aqaba in what is now Jordan, and they make attacks on... Ottoman positions in the Mediterranean world around Alexandretta, in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean, sort of where Syria and Turkey now, where their frontier is, as well as actually making an attack on the entrance to the Straits of the Dardanelles and blowing up a major strategic fort that the Ottomans held and spiking Ottoman guns. The Ottomans, for their part, made their first hostile bids, one in an ill-conceived attack against Russian positions in the Caucasus regions of eastern Turkey. They did so between Christmas and New Year 1914, 1915. And they lost their third army, mostly to the terrible weather conditions where soldiers were dying of freezing conditions and frostbite and whatnot. So massive loss for the Ottomans in their first hostile bid. The second was to try and attack British positions on the Suez Canal in February of 1915. And again, though the Ottomans managed to try and establish a bridgehead on the Suez Canal. They were driven back with high casualties on the canal zone, no harm done to the British. Both the British strikes and those of the Ottomans convinced the Entente powers that the weakened Ottoman Empire did not have the means to withstand any serious onslaught. And it set in motion a very dangerous precedent of the Entente powers underestimating the Ottomans' war capacity. And I think that was the fatal moment where Britain and France and Russia said, Wherever we push, the Ottomans collapse. Wherever they attempt, they lose armies. So let's make a final coup de grace and eliminate one of the Axis powers right from the start.
0: And obviously, you mentioned the Caucasus and the Russians invading. One of those Aspects that was going on was this conflict between the Armenians and the Ottomans. Generally, what was at the center of that conflict? And did the Russians invade or the fighting around the Caucasus that play a big role in the events that would later transpire?
1: Well, I think Ottoman Armenian tensions have a long history, and you could really trace them back to the 1870s to 1890s. In the 1890s, you witnessed a series of massacres in Turkey that kills, by conservative estimates, Over 100,000, some say over 200,000 Armenians. So, I mean, practically a genocide already in the 1890s. The driver for these hostilities had a great deal to do with Ottoman concerns for Armenian loyalties in an increasingly nationalist age, where the Ottoman experience of Christian minorities, particularly in the Balkans, taking their Christian identity and their distinctive history and language as a basis on which to create an ideology, pursue a nationalist goal, and seek secession from the Ottoman Empire. That's in the Balkans. The Armenians, to the extent that there was a concentration of Armenians, the biggest concentration was actually in Istanbul. But other than that, they were mostly based in six Ottoman provinces of eastern Turkey towards the frontier with Russia. And in the course of the 1870s, the Armenians, with Russian support, had put forward a reform project to try and group these six provinces, not one of which Armenians were a majority in. They were a minority in each of them, but where collectively you had the highest concentration of Armenians, and to place them under a kind of autonomous administrative structure, rather like Mount Lebanon with its Christian minorities, and this with Russian protection. From the Ottoman perspective, that was a formula for a separatist movement backed by a powerful adversary, Russia, that could see whole parts of the Turkish heartland in eastern Anatolia alienated from Ottoman control in a process that had already cost the Ottomans their position in the Balkans. And it's that suspicion of the Armenians that will, in the 20th century, give rise to a growing mistrust and a perception of the Armenians as constituting a fifth column, seeking an independent Armenian state with Russian protection. I say this knowing that for Armenian listeners, that sounds like the typical Turkish line that blames the Armenians, the victims of the genocide. And I don't mean to say that. Because we have to remember that the Armenians were very enthusiastic supporters of the Young Turk Revolution in 1908. Armenians were very active in the Ottoman parliament in the second constitutional period. And even the Armenian nationalist movements were closely allied with the Committee of Union and Progress, which was the Young Turk Party. So, you know, it's very important to remember how implicated the Armenians were in Ottoman politics. But they were certainly undermined by the way in which Russia advocated their cause for Armenian reforms, and in February of 1914, the Ottomans were forced, under great Russian pressure, to sign a commitment to oversee the Armenian reforms, creating these autonomous zones that had been in place since the 1870s. I think, coming as it did in February of 1914, that Armenian reform agreement and Russia's role in brokering it put the Armenians in a very compromised position no one could have predicted was about to break out.
0: And to move on to one of the biggest battles during the war in the Middle East, which was the Battle of Gallipoli, what generally motivated the Allies to launch an expedition against the Dardanelles, and how did the course of the battle go?
1: The Battle of Gallipoli is one which I have very personal ties to. And in many ways, the genesis of the book dates back to a visit I did with my mother and my son to visit my great-uncle, who was a 19-year-old Scottish soldier with the Eight Scottish rifles lost his life in Gallipoli and was just struck by how little I knew about the campaign from the Turkish or Ottoman perspective, having heard about it all my life from the Scottish perspective. And I think in doing research for the book, it was one of the most compelling areas because the human drama on both sides of the trenches is just so overpowering. But the origins of the Gallipoli campaign actually date back to that first Ottoman assault on Russian positions in the late December, early January weeks of 1914, 1915. And though the Ottomans lost that battle, the Battle of Sarikamish, they really spooked the Russians. They very nearly, through their bold attempt, encircled a Russian army and could have forced a Russian surrender. And in the first response of panic, the Tsar's government reached out to their allies and asked them to make a demonstration that would draw Ottoman troops away from the Caucasus and take the pressure off Russia. By the time the Gallipoli campaign actually starts, there was no longer any pressure on Russian positions. It wasn't necessary. But as I said, the British and French perception of Ottoman weakness suggested to them that where you push, the Ottomans collapsed. Why not go in, make a bold stroke now, seize the Ottoman capital, force the surrender of the Sultan and his government, and deprive Germany of one of their triple alliance allies right in the opening months of the war. You have to remember at this point in sort of early 1915, you're already reduced to trench warfare on the Western Front. The war of momentum had been finally halted in the Battle of the Marne, and everyone was facing, those months were the worst fatalities in the Western Front of the entire war. So literally hemorrhaging troops. Britain and France were very keen to try and find some other place on the map Where there might be a breakthrough and a restoration of war of movement that might allow them to more quickly defeat the Central Powers, Austria and Germany. And so they looked on the Ottoman Empire and particularly the waterways leading to the Black Sea as a strategic objective because, were they able to succeed, they would not only be able to eliminate one of Germany's allies, but they would have a sea route to move men and material to join Russian forces on the Eastern Front and then put pressure on Germany and Austria at two ends if you like. So there were a lot of things tied up why suddenly taking Constantinople looked like a good idea. In their first attempt to do so, so as not to draw soldiers away from the Western Front, Winston Churchill encouraged a plan that would be based entirely around using the Navy. The Navy wasn't really active in this stage of World War I and they were able to deploy a whole armada to try and clear the mines Silence the guns, and move ships through the Dardanelles across the Sea of Marmara to take positions around Istanbul that would force the Sultan to surrender. But they hadn't counted on how tenacious Ottoman defenses of the Dardanelles would be. And for the first months of 1915, British and French minesweepers failed to find the mines that were blocking their ship's access through the Dardanelles. Moreover, the ship's progress was being hindered, by mobile artillery batteries that were able to lob shells at the Allied ships with impunity. And so they took the fateful decision in March 1915 to just try and force the Straits, even if they hadn't cleaned the mines up. They hadn't found them. Maybe they weren't there. And they sent ships in, and they dealt the Ottomans their first victory of the First World War. When six ships of the line were sunk or disabled beyond repair, thousands of Western casualties, virtually no Ottoman casualties And the Ottomans forced the Allies back to rethink the only way they could silence those guns was to seize the land on which they were based. And then they moved to the fateful decision in April of 1915 to actually land troops in Gallipoli. And so begins a nine-month campaign that would prove one of the bloodiest of the entire First World War, one of the most relentless. I mean, all the soldiers who had served on the Western Front and Gallipoli by far preferred the Western Front because day and night, with no relief. Soldiers were subject to machine gun and artillery fire and just random casualties everywhere. And among them, my great uncle. So, yes, quite a tragic, quite a compelling story for which we have fabulous material as well. Tons of memoirs from both the Ottoman and the Allied side. So it made writing that part of the book just particularly compelling for me.
0: And after kind of the failure of the Gallipoli campaign, did the Allies' view or strategy of the Middle East really change at all, or was it mostly kind of the same attitudes that the Ottomans were weak and they could still kind of potentially eliminate the Ottomans from the war?
1: Well, I think that Gallipoli forced the Allies to take a new respect for the Ottoman war effort. The tenacity with which they held their lines against sustained Allied assaults certainly impressed the British and French. It also worried them. The Ottoman sultan had declared jihad against Britain, France, and Russia. The British and French were very concerned to spell any sense among their Muslim colonial subjects that the um, Ottoman war effort would be successful. They didn't want to see colonial uprisings in North Africa under the French, in India under the British, or in the Caucasus under the Russians that might Allow the Germans to secure an advantage against the Triple Entente through their colonies. If you like, very preoccupied with demonstrating that the Ottomans were unable to deliver on their call for jihad. Their failure in Gallipoli forced them to look to extend their footprint in the Middle Eastern theater, a theater which they had always dismissed as a sideshow. They knew that the real battle was on the Western Front and that the Eastern Front was Obviously, uh, the second order where the Russian and German forces were in conflict, but the Middle East, the Ottoman front, sideshow. They got drawn deeper in the sideshow to try and put to rest their concerns that setbacks in the Ottoman front might encourage uprisings among Muslims in their empires. And in this way, they got drawn in deeper in the Mesopotamia campaign. As I said, they'd already been drawn into Mesopotamia in the opening days of the war, to secure the vital Shat al-Arab waterways between the Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire, and secure Abadan Island and the oil resources. But while there, Basra was just a little bit upstream, very easily taken. They continued to move right up the Shat al-Arab to the convergence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and then began to set the ambition of seizing all the territory in Basra province, and that put them on the road to Baghdad. As they realized that they were going to have to evacuate Gallipoli in the fall of 1915. Looking on victory in Baghdad against the Ottoman Empire, famous city, former seat of Islamic caliphs, there were those among the Allied war planners who believed extending their lines up to Baghdad would be some way of compensating for losing in the Battle of Gallipoli. And so they made the fatal decision to extend from secure positions deeper into Mesopotamia and to make a stab at taking Baghdad. It leads to a catastrophic defeat in the Battle of Ctesiphon and a withdrawal of British troops under hostile fire back to a bend in the river Tigris known as Kut El Amara, which will lead to a four-month siege, one of the longest sieges in history, and the total surrender of an entire British army when the Ottomans surrounded their positions and were successfully able to block any relief column from breaking through. They literally starved Townshend's army into total surrender. And by the early months of 2016, uh, 1916, the surrender at Kut El Amara was the Allies dealing the Ottomans their second major victory, the Great War. And at that point, the British position was so compromised in the Ottoman Empire that it forced them to look to deepen their footprint in the Middle Eastern theater even further. And that's when we'll start getting the origins of the Sinai and Palestine campaigns.
0: And just to follow up, did the motivation for the Allies trying to take kind of Mesopotamia and the surrounding area also kind of come with this idea of being able to eventually colonize it after the war?
1: Well, it's really interesting because one of the compelling features of the Great War in the Middle East is the diplomatic history. I refer to as partition diplomacy, which sees Britain, France, and Russia in active debate about what they're going to do with the geostrategic territories of a defeated Ottoman Empire post-war. Their concern was to ensure that they arrived at a divvying up of territory that all three agreed on, so that coming through this great war, they wouldn't find themselves going to war with each other over colonial disputes. And it begins with Russia formalizing its claim to Constantinople and the Straits and to additional territories in the Caucasus, and what comes to be known as the Constantinople Agreement of February, March 1915. It's not a particularly well known diplomatic agreement, but it starts the partition diplomacy. France at that point stakes its claim to Syria and Cilicia. So it's laying the foundations of what will be the post war French claim to Syria and Lebanon. And at that point, Britain had no clear territorial ambitions in the Ottoman Empire. And they agreed to their allies' demands, but reserved for themselves the right to claim equally strategic territory once they'd worked out what would complement their empire. And here, their Mesopotamia campaign was to give them the answer. Their armies were there, they were conquering this territory, and it looked as though it would complement the British empire in the Persian Gulf, where their treaty arrangements had turned the Persian Gulf into something of a British lake. Where basically from Oman through the Trucial States, through Qatar, Bahrain, the eastern province of Arabia and Kuwait, they already had treaty arrangements with all the local leaders. If they could add the province of Basra and beyond to those territories, there was a kind of coherent extension of Britain's empire in the Persian Gulf region and the way that interfaced with the British Raj in India. So they declare an interest over Mesopotamia as their quid pro quo for conceding Syria to the French, Constantinople to the Russians. And then how much of Mesopotamia do they want? Initially, it would be Basra and Baghdad provinces. Ultimately, they would seize on Mosul as well because of the known oil reserves that that territory held and which Britain quite rightly recognized would be a real asset for their empire in the future. So yes, I mean, I think in this, the deepening of the Mesopotamia campaign was when Britain began to define for the first time territorial ambitions in the Ottoman Empire. But of course, that partition diplomacy will continue. It will lead to Britain ultimately making claims to Palestine through the Zionist movement, the Balfour Declaration, and having to firm up its partition with France through the Sykes-Picot Agreement. All compromised a little bit by promises made to the Sharifs in Mecca to try and persuade them to launch revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, The British hoped might help provoke the collapse of the Ottoman state through a breakdown of the state from within, with the Arabs revolting against the Ottomans. Complicated diplomacy.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed. And to follow up on the Arab revolt, what would ultimately lead to that event? And how big of a role did the Allies play in organizing this revolt?
1: Well, the Arab world had witnessed the emergence of that were very concerned with the way Arab rights were being undermined by the centralizing measures of the Young Turk regime 1909, 1910. So you had secret societies. They were secret because political activists were not allowed to meet in open and talk about changing the status quo in the Ottoman Empire. That was seen as sedition, so it was strongly discouraged. But these secret societies were clear that they wanted a better deal for the Arab provinces in the Ottoman system. Most of them were not overtly nationalist. They were afraid that if they seceded from the Ottoman Empire, they would be unprotected from European imperial ambitions. In fact, they would be proved right, as we'll see in the post-war settlement. But with the outbreak of World War One and the catastrophic Ottoman performance in the opening weeks of the war, many in the Arab world began to believe that the Ottoman Empire's decision to enter the war on Germany's side was going to lead to the defeat of the empire and its occupation. And they were very keen to take advantage of this opportunity to try and promote an Arab state. They reached out to the Sharifs of Mecca to see whether the Sharifs, as leading Islamic figures, the most highly ranked Islamic figures in the old Ottoman Empire. The Sharif of Mecca, second only to the Sultan and his role as Caliph, very significant. Their legitimacy as descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, indisputed, and their political knowledge and experience recommending them for leadership roles. So secret societies linked to the military reached out to the Sharif of Mecca in the beginning of the war to see whether they would lead a revolt of the Arab people against the Ottoman Empire. And about the same time, the British, concerned about their failings in Gallipoli, begin to think that an Arab revolt would be one way that they might be able to pressure the collapse of the Ottoman Empire without having to commit more troops. This is the ongoing tension from the Allies' perspective, how to provoke the collapse of the Ottoman Empire without having to send many soldiers in because they didn't want to divert soldiers from more critical fronts, on the Western Front in particular. So the Sharifs of Mecca, hearing this appeal from nationalists in the Arab provinces, being approached by the British, begin to put the two together and say, in alliance with the British, working with the Arab nationalist movements, we might be able actually to put in a bid for a new state to emerge from the Ottoman Empire as an Arab kingdom with Hashemites, Sharif Hussein becoming king of Hejaz, his sons becoming kings of subordinate parts. You'd have a confederation of kingdoms under the Hashemites as a vision of post-Ottoman Arab statecraft. And the British encouraged that. The British conclude a series of agreements through letters written by their high commissioner in Egypt, Sir Henry McMahon, and Sharif Hussein in Mecca, targeting the launching of a revolt against the Ottomans. In essence, the British agreed to provide logistical support. They provided gold to fund the war effort. They provided guns and cannons, and they provided food made sure that the grain supply would be there gold, guns, grain. That was to be the limit of Britain's involvement, not least because to keep the peace among Muslims in India, Britain had promised that they would not draw the holy cities of Islam or the, pro- the province of Hejaz into the war effort. And here they were supporting a revolt that was being launched from the holiest city of Islam, Mecca. So they did not want to have any troops on the ground. They wanted to make sure that they were supporting But in the course of time, the limits of the Sharif's ability to prosecute a war with tribal irregulars and a very small regular army forced the British to face the option of either engaging more or witnessing the Ottomans retake the territory from the Hashemites and defeating the Arab revolt before it even got started. In the end, they decided to send a liaison officer, T.E. Lawrence, who becomes famous as Lawrence of Arabia, to help the Hashemites organize their regular army by recruiting. Prisoners from POW camps, Ottoman, Arab officers and soldiers, and to oversee the flow of intelligence as well as supplies to facilitate or enable the Hashemite war effort against the Ottomans. They also deployed the Royal Navy to help pin up Hashemite positions. And in this way, the British found themselves perhaps more directly engaged in the Arab revolt than ever they wanted to be. But in saying that, I would go against the Western view that it was Lawrence of Arabia that was leading the revolt or brought them victory. It was truly an Arab revolt. The Hashemites played the leading role in commanding the movement and the overwhelming weight of the soldiers fighting in it. It Were Arab regulars or else Bedouin irregulars. And in a sense, if it failed, it failed to stir an Arab wide revolt. It remains very much a localized uprising in the Red Sea province of the Hejaz never really makes it into the Syrian provinces until the very final stages of the war. So of limited military impact, other than pinning down 10,000, 11,000 Ottoman troops in their garrison city of Medina, near to Mecca itself. For pinning those troops down who might have made a material contribution to the Ottoman war effort in Palestine and Syria, the Arab revolt played an important role, but certainly not a war of conquest, not the war of motion that I think people hoped the Hashemites produced.
0: And maybe skipping ahead a little bit, but ultimately, how did the war come to an end in the Middle East? Did the Ottomans realize it was pretty much over once Germany agreed to an armistice?
1: Well, I think what really broke the Ottomans was the final British campaign in Palestine. And all I would say is by the time the British finally managed to break through, it's September, October of 1918. I felt in writing the book that one has to salute the tenacity of the Ottoman Empire, and of the common Ottoman soldier, known affectionately to the Turks as Mehmedchik, little Mehmed, who proved just such a determined and capable fighter and such a tenacious defender of territory. The Ottomans, by the time we get to the end of the war in 1918, had defeated the combined Entente forces in Gallipoli, the British Indian army in Kut al Amara, and had driven back not just one, but two determined British attacks on their positions in Gaza and Beersheba. Before you got the first breakthrough in Beersheba in 1917, that leads to the occupation of Jerusalem at the end of 1917. But even there, the Ottomans were able to regroup and hold the British. The British make two attempts to drive across the Jordan Valley and into Jordan to attack Amman. And twice the Ottomans drove them back with high casualties inflicted on the the British forces. So the tenacity of the Ottomans was really remarkable. But Allenby, who was commanding British forces in Palestine, was someone who really was effective in command because he used guile. He was a trickster. And he was able to fool the Ottomans into thinking the British were mounting a third attempt across the Jordan Valley into Oman. When, by deploying fake horses, yes, such thing exists, you can do a wood cutout, and pull them through the dusty Jordan Valley. And it looks like real horses making dust. And at night, moving troops and cavalry and artillery into positions on the coastal regions of Palestine. And then they unleashed an overwhelming artillery and then infantry drive in Northern Palestine, catching the Ottomans totally by surprise. And the Ottomans and the German allies driven into a retreat from which they never recovered. The allies pursue the Ottoman forces through the northern reach of Palestine, into the West Bank, taking Nazareth, Nablus, these places, and then right across the Jordan, and then up their way up from Transjordan towards Damascus, which falls early in October 1918. And then again, they just don't relent. They take Damascus, the Ottomans withdraw without a fight, and the retreating Ottomans are constantly pursued. They surrender all the key cities of Syria in the month of October, Homs, Hama, Even Aleppo falls until the last of the Ottomans are driven into Turkish territory north of the Taurus Mountains in Anatolia, at which point the British and their Arab allies hold their ground and allow the Ottomans to pursue an armistice. That armistice coming into effect on the 31st of October comes only 11 days before the Germans signed their own armistice on the 11th of November. And so how remarkable that a country that had been dismissed as the weakest of the central powers would outlast Bulgaria and would stand side by side with their German allies until the last 11 days of the war. But at that point, they were well and truly beat. Their economy had suffered such a beating in four years of war. The war morale sapped their troops. No longer really had the conviction that they could continue to defend their territories. And at that point, exhaustion overtook valor and the Ottomans collapsed.
0: And just to ask some concluding questions, one aspect of the war in the Middle East that is still debated to this day is the Armenian genocide. Some countries recognize it, some do not. What are
1: your conclusions about the event? My conclusions are very colored by a group of particularly Turkish scholars whose research in Ottoman materials leaves one with very little doubt of the planning, the conduct, the intention of the genocide. And in terming it a genocide, these scholars are themselves confronting a great deal of opposition at home. Even as a respected Western academic, when I have lectured in Turkish universities and been challenged on the genocide question, I got the full fury of nationalist Turks in many places to this day Reject in the majority of the idea that what happened constituted a genocide. But you cannot get around the fact that even in 1919-1920, the then Ottoman Empire convened tribunals to take evidence and to try those deemed responsible for their role in what was then called Armenian massacres, the term genocide was not at that point coined and was not applied, and that even a young Turk leader like Jamal Pasha, in his memoirs, Recognize that at least 650,000 Armenians were mass murdered. The tribunal records would suggest the Ottomans were already accepting figures in excess of a million Armenians having been murdered. It's very hard to get away from the evidence that says there was a deliberate policy pursued to try and reduce the number of Armenians in any part of the Ottoman Empire to no more than five to 10 percent, so that in no part of the Ottoman Empire might they try and stake claim A national territory. And this 5 to 10 percent policy was one which necessarily led to mass murder in terms that could only be defined today as a genocide, conducted either by the killing of people directly, forced marches in which people would die through exposure, or else through forced conversion, of which there are numerous recorded examples of people embracing Islam as a way to no longer be deemed the Armenian threat. And in this way, we're spared then dying as a result of these policies. You can point to whole areas of the Ottoman Empire in which Armenians were safely received. Jamal Pasha, the governor general of Syria, known in the Arab world as a bloodshedder for his killing of Arab nationalists, was always lauded or touted for his role in helping to resettle Armenian refugees from forced dislocation from their homelands in eastern Turkey in Syria where they were not rounded up and murdered. And many argue that in the absence of, let us say, a total destruction machine on the model of the Shoah or the Jewish Holocaust, that this was not a genocide. I don't accept that. I would distinguish between the Nazi death machine, the gas chambers, and what the Ottomans put in place. No comparison between the two. But the historical evidence, it seems to me, is indisputable. That there was a deliberate attempt to eliminate the threat that the Armenians were deemed to perceive to be, and that in so doing, that the Young Turks committed a crime against humanity that we today would call a genocide.
0: And my final question is ultimately: what are the ramifications of the First World War in the Middle East, and what do you think its legacy is?
1: Well, the legacy clearly is the state system of the modern Middle East that was shaped not by the assertion of self-determination by the peoples involved, but by the imposition of colonial boundaries by the victorious entente powers. And the borders that they left prove very enduring, as have the conflicts engendered by the injustices and the illegitimacy of that province. And if you think about the conflicts that emerged, the most obvious being the unresolved contradictions of the Balfour Declaration, you could not create a Jewish national home without damage to the civil and religious rights of the indigenous people. It's a formula which sounds reasonable until you think about what it means. It set in motion rival and incompatible national movements, Zionist and Palestinian, that were to begin to lead to violence really from the opening days of the British mandate and continue down to the present time as the unresolved scar of the post-World War I era. You can point to the stateless left behind by that post-war process, such as the Kurdish peoples, who found themselves, through the new frontiers imposed on the Ottoman Empire, on the post-Ottoman world, divided between Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. Their search for institutions of statehood that would correspond to their demography and would respect their culture goes frustrated down to the present day and remains an area of pressure on the state system. Even the separation of Lebanon from Syria, posed by the French to try and favor Christian allies who they thought might be loyal partners in their colonial project, the French imagining their empire would last far longer than it did, gave rise to an unstable and many would argue an untenable sectarian state in Lebanon whose difficulties have led to civil wars in subsequent years in 1958 and 1975 to 1990, and still makes Lebanon ungovernable today. So, I mean, I think you could say that the First World War left the Middle East as one of the most volatile regions to emerge from the post-war world and the legacy that lives with us today. It defines the modern Middle East.
0: So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Rogan. Again, I always enjoy the interviews. I think they're great insights. And again, I think Middle Eastern scholarship is always kind of interesting because you have to, as he was explaining, you have to deal with some of those political hurdles that unfortunately impede historians into kind of writing history for what it is, as opposed to more democratic countries that oftentimes kind of require classified or archives to be opened up to the public. And those are always probably the best resources for people. Personally, I'm going to be going to an archive and doing my first sort of research in that. So that's going to be an interesting experience, I think but offers unique insight in the history. But the, just to summarize, I think, again, this is our final episode of season two, and World War I is one of the more consequential events of the 20th century, maybe the most consequential event, because it ultimately leads to the Second World War. And although the Middle East wasn't really at the center of the Second World War, some of the seeds that were sown in the First World War would kind of set the stage for all of the conflict that would come after the Second World War and all the way to today where you still see volatility in the region and various states kind of vying for influence and hegemony in the region. So I mean, it'll be interesting to kind of see where the Middle East goes. And I think it's always important to kind of look at history and see, well, where do the roots of these conflicts and the Middle East go? And that really starts with the First World War. So I hope you enjoy the interview. I hope you enjoyed season two and we'll definitely be coming back with more interviews and more great content when we return for season three. Thank you for listening. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.